We're in the book of Revelation. This is part three, and we're in chapter three. Please don't get worried and think, "Uh uh-oh, that means this is going to be 22 weeks, because it's not. But we are going to go kind of slowly through uh, chapter four especially, which we will get started in today, Lord willing. But what we're looking at so far, where we left off last week was in chapters two and three, John the Apostle speaks to the seven churches. He chooses seven of the many churches he could have chosen in that day, seven of them in Asia Minor, and he uh, addresses them. He kind of becomes Dr. Jesus, puts in his spiritual stethoscope, listens to their chest, and then diagnoses them. Uh, You're healthy, you're sick, you're terminal and dying. Those are kind of the three categories we'll see. And they're in there so that all churches in all places and in all of time will look at them and say, oh, which one of those are we? Which characteristics do we have? And by the way, churches are what their people are. So it's not just, oh, my church is one of those. It's we as people are either healthy or we're spiritually sick or we're spiritually dead and dying. So we're to learn from this. It's what the Spirit says to the churches. But one one unique thing that we should keep in mind about these seven churches is that they were all suffering fierce persecution. Like you and I have never suffered. Like we have soft persecution in the United States. Maybe it's going to get worse. Maybe it's going to get turned into like more hardened persecution. We'll see. But right now we know, we pretty much know nothing of this. But a lot of people in a lot of time have, and in every era of church history, there are Christians who suffer for their faith and who suffer grievously. I thought it would be a good idea in the spirit of Hebrews 13 that I'll read in a second, Hebrews 13:3, a good idea for us to think for a moment about our brothers and sisters in Christ who are persecuted at other places on this planet right now. In the spirit of Hebrews 13:3, which says to us, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And remember those who are mistreated, they're being mistreated, many of them, since you also are in the body, like they're being mistreated bodily, they're not fed, they're beaten, they're kept awake, whatever, since you also are in the body, think about them, remember them, and of course, our hearts go out to them and we pray for them. But here's a couple things on persecution in the world today. Number one, I'll put it up. Persecution of Christians is steadily on the rise. For example, in 2014, there were 108 countries in which it was dangerous to be a Christian. It was hard to be a Christian. Now it is hot in 140 countries. There are, depending on who's counting, 198 countries in the world. Not all of those 140 are persecuting Christians. Some of those are persecuting other faiths. But in many of those, it is Christians. Uh, Number two, the 10 worst countries for persecution of Christians are, in this order, North Korea. It's been by far the worst with no close second, except number two that you see there, uh, Afghanistan, has now crept up to within one point. But North Korea has been the worst for a long, long time. Like in North Korea... If they find out you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, that's pretty much a death sentence for you. Not like they're going to, you know, go with you, but you're going to a labor camp and you're going to die there. You're never coming out unless you deny Jesus, which they don't. And you're going to be in forced hard labor, long days. You're hardly given any food to eat. Mainly when they die, they die of starvation. They're all horribly skinny and emaciated, and these are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and the worst of them is North Korea. 
then Afghanistan, Somalia, Sudan, Pakistan, Eritrea, Libya, Iraq, Yemen, and Iran. Those are only the top 10 of 140 countries where there is persecution, many of them Christian persecution. How many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are enduring persecution right now? Point three, over 340 million Christians presently live where they experience high, very high, or extreme levels of persecution. How many was that again? That's not a mistake. Over 340 million people like you and you and you and you and me. And they're living where there's high, very high, or extreme levels of persecution. What was it like in the past 12 months? What was it like in the past year? Well, I'm going to round these numbers up so I can read it faster. But in the last year, about 5,000 Christians were killed for their faith. That's 400 a month. That's 30 every day. So if today's an average day, 30 of your brothers and sisters will die rather than deny Jesus Christ today. And 30 more tomorrow and 30 more the next day and 30 more the next day and on and on it goes. Uh, about uh, 4,500 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked in the past year. About 4,000 believers were detained without trial. You just go like, whoop, in the middle of the night, they're gone, never see them again. Without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. That's been in the past year. Also, um, to go on to number five, yes, thank you. The most recent mass killing of Christians happened in Sri Lanka when on Easter morning in 2019, 150 Christians died in strikes by suicide bombers at three churches. That was Easter morning, 2019. So, yeah, there's real persecution on the planet makes living in the good old U.S. of A. look a little better than it's been feeling like lately, huh? Yeah, we got it easy, which tends to make us soft, by the way, which tends not to cleanse our churches of nominal Christians, but maybe some churches are easily filled with nominal Christians. Not in those lands. You don't profess it unless you mean it. You don't profess it unless you're willing to stand for it and seal it with your blood. So this is what it was like where these seven churches were. It was like those churches we just described now. This is what they had then. And the book of Revelation was written to those seven, and those seven are kind of descriptive of all churches in all of time. Let's see uh, what Dr. Jesus found when he put his stethoscope to their chests. And the seven churches, I'll put this up, give us a primer on three kinds of churches. They're healthy, as I already mentioned, and sick and terminally ill. So let's look at what we saw last week. We looked at the church in Ephesus, and what did we find? We found that the church in Ephesus is sick. It was sick. What was their problem? What was their illness? They were lacking love. They had works and they had labor and they had toil, but they had no faith, no hope, no love. And because of that, Jesus said, that's a sick church. They're lacking love. Love, what kind of love? Love for Christ. Love for God's word. Love for gathering with God's people. Love for corporate worship. Love for reaching lost people. Love for building up the kingdom of God. Love for the word of God. They were lacking love. 
All the passion had been bled out of them. All the heart, all the soul. And remember, it's not just that a church is somehow lacking love. Where that's the case, it's because the people are lacking love. How are you doing with love for Christ? Love for the kingdom of God, love for God's word, love for gathering with believers, love for bold, unflinching, courageous witness to the lost people in darkness around us. Ephesus was sick. They were lacking love. How about the church in Smyrna? They were healthy. They were a healthy church. Jesus says, you guys are enduring poverty. I know your poverty, but you're rich. They were spiritually rich, though earthly poor, because they would not deny Christ. They would not go into the idol temples and worship the idols. They would not say Caesar is Lord. And because of that, they lost their jobs. They lost their careers. And they're spiritually impoverished. I'm sorry, physically impoverished. But spiritually, they were rich. I hope you would make that choice if you had to. I hope you would decide, I want to be rich in the things of God, though it make me poor in the things of this world. That's what they did in Smyrna, and Jesus was happy with that church. What about Pergamum? What do we find there? They were sick. The cause of their sickness, they were a compromising church. All this pressure coming to us from the culture to conform to the idolatrous worship, all this pressure coming from the culture and the government to say Caesar is God, let's, let's just compromise. Let's just find a way to fit in. You know, you, you, can, you can worship at the idol temple, and you know the idols are nothing for real. So just go ahead and do it. Don't lose your job over this. And Jesus said, no, that would be denying me. And these people were sick because they were compromising with the world. What about the church in Thyatira? They were sick because they were tolerant. Now, tolerance is, is like one of the prime virtues in our day. But in the church of Jesus Christ, there are certain things and even certain people who are not to be tolerated. And they had this, this woman, he calls her a Jezebel, an Old Testament bad woman. They had this Jezebel in their church who's leading the people of God to worship idols, who's leading the people of God to go ahead and indulge themselves in the immorality of the temple. And the church was tolerating her. What should the church have done? Boot her. Get her out of there. There's this thing called church discipline. You don't allow that stuff to be going in. Paul says to Titus, after first and second admonition, reject them. If they're doing that, they didn't reject. They were a tolerant church. What about the church in Sardis? Alas, they're terminal because they were losing their grip on the Bible. They were not holding fast to the faith, the faith, that body of Christian doctrine. They were not holding fast to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And you read through the pastoral epistles, and again and again, it's the faith, the faith, the faith, the faith, the faith, the faith. They weren't holding fast to the faith. They were losing their Bible. They were giving away God's revelation. They were distancing themselves from it. And so they were losing their grip on Jesus Christ. That's a church in Sardis. They were terminal. What about the church in Philadelphia? We're going to see them today. They were healthy. They're keeping God's word. Let's see how. Revelation 3, 8, the second half of the verse. Here it is. Jesus says to them, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And in a time of persecution or not, that's a healthy church. You've got people and so you've got a church who are keeping the word of God. You've got people and so you have a church who are not denying the name of Christ. You've got people who are planting their flag and standing on the truth, 
that body of doctrine delivered to the saints. And because of this, Jesus is happy and they are healthy. May we be such Christians. May we be such a church. And then Jesus gives them a couple of exhortations and, and a, promise, a couple of promises. Let's look at it, verses 11 and 12. He says, here's a promise to a suffering, persecuted church. He says, I'm coming soon. What does that mean? It's only gonna be a little while. I'm gonna get you out of that mess. And so here's an exhortation to them. They're already doing it, but he says it anyway. Hold fast what you have. What did they have? They had the gospel. They had the Lord Jesus Christ. They had salvation by grace through faith plus Christ plus nothing, in Christ plus nothing. They had the, the Bible, the Old Testament, and the New Testament at this time mostly or entirely written except for this book. So Jesus says to them, hold fast to that so that no one may seize your crown. There are crown thieves on the planet. They want to seize your crown. They want to rob you of it. So at the last day, you're no longer standing. You're no longer in Christ. You've given up your faith. You've become an apostate. You've turned your back on God's word and on the gospel, maybe because of the pressure, maybe because of the culture, maybe because of persecution. They wanted to seize their crown. Jesus says, you hold fast and don't let that happen. And here's a promise. The one who conquers... That word conquers is used eight times with these churches. And it's used eight times in the rest of the book after these churches. What is the book of Revelation about? Conquering, holding fast to Christ in the midst of persecution, not turning your back, not walking away. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar. We read this earlier. I'll make him a pillar. Now, when you came into our building today, did you notice two big round columns? Columns and pillars, differences, but we're for our purposes, same thing. Did you notice two big round columns? By the way, the temple in Solom of Solomon's temple had two big columns, and they were even named. Can you remember their names? What was the one? Boaz, and what was the other one? Jachin. Y'all didn't know that. We ought to rate it on those two columns out there, Boaz and Jachin, like in Solomon's temple. But Jesus says, I'll make you a Boaz. I'll make you a Jacob. You'll be a column. You'll be a pillar. You'll be a support. You'll be sturdy. You'll be solid in the temple of my God, which is made of living stones in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who hold fast, those who conquer, their reward is their pillars. So here's a word for CCC. Let's be like Philadelphia. Let's be like Smyrna, healthy churches. Let's keep and not let loose. Let's keep and not deny. Let's hold fast. Let's conquer, conquer, conquer eight times. Let's be like Philadelphia, healthy. What about Laodicea, the last one? Well, they were sick because they were lukewarm. Look at what Jesus says to them. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot. So here Jesus is sipping the church. It's like the church has a little cup of tea. He's sipping the church. Let's take a sip. Uh, it's not cold. Take another sip. It's not hot. What is it? It's lukewarm. How many of you like lukewarm tea? 
Not good, huh? My dad's British. He's probably listening to this. Hi, Dad. Dad's British. Came over here after World War II. And, you know, over there, they don't use ice in their drinks. You don't get ice. So we'll go out to lunch with my parents, and Dad will say, I'd, I'd like water, no ice. And then they bring it to him, no ice, but it's cold water. And he complains to me a little bit. Why do they bring me cold water when they know I don't like it? He doesn't want, he wants lukewarm water. Jesus doesn't want lukewarm churches. He wants you to either be cold, in which case we know what to do with cold. We're going to preach the gospel to cold. We're going to try and lead them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Or he wants you hot because hot will reach those people and hot will preach the gospel and hot will love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says, I wish you were cold. I'd know what to do with that. Wish you were hot. We know how to deal with that. But you're lukewarm. And a lukewarm Christian is good for pretty much nothing. What does it mean to be lukewarm? No heart. No passion. No heavenly longings. No desires for Christ. His word, his people, his worship. No, no heart about leading people to Christ. Just lukewarm. I say I'm a believer. I'm a believer. Wouldn't know it. Take their temperature. Not a temperature like a believer. Not 98.6. More like 45. Jesus likes his churches hot, which means he likes his Christians hot. Is he liking you? Are you spiritually hot? or lukewarm, or cold. There's a word for cornerstone there. So seven churches, all seven of those, those kinds show up in every era, and the rest of the book is what's happening in heaven over top of them and all the churches in every era. Now let me give you some observations about those seven churches. Here's number one, and I'll put it up. Just note the numbers, would you? Of seven persecuted churches, two were healthy, four were sick, one was terminal. Now, I don't know if, I don't think the text is saying, this is what it will be in every era. This is what you'll always find, those proportions. But this is in the apostolic era. This is in the first century. These churches are founded by apostles and their helpers. It's 60 years later, and already only two are healthy. Four are sick. One was terminal. Selah. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's interesting, I read a study this week which is studying church health on a different spectrum, and, and they interviewed 15,000 pastors at 15,000 different churches. They surveyed them on a bunch of questions to assess the health of their churches, and of those 15,000 pastors, 17% said their church is healthy, and 83% said their church is unhealthy. 17% healthy, 83% said unhealthy. Most of those, it was about 65% said, we're just surviving. We're just like holding on, we're just surviving. Well, they were measured on a different scale than these seven churches, but look, with these seven, only two are healthy. Oh Lord, please make, please keep, Cornerstone Church, a healthy church. What that means is Cornerstone people, healthy believers. Cornerstone people, healthy followers of Christ. Here's a second observation. It does not take long for a church to get sick. 
I mean, again, I already said this, but these churches are 60 years old. Some of them were planted by the Apostle Paul 60 years later. And only a couple of them are healthy, and the rest of them have degenerated, and there's a mess. Read the epistles of the New Testament. How many of them are written to healthy churches? There are problems in almost every one. The Philippians get a pass. They were doing pretty good. They had two ladies who couldn't get along. That's the worst they had. Tell Yodia and tell Syntyche to get along in the Lord. That was their biggest problem. Most of the churches are a mess. Read the Corinthian epistles. Goodness. It doesn't take long for a church to get sick. A word to the wise, him who has ears to hear. Don't ever think, well, Cornerstone's a healthy church, and I think it is, and I pray that it is, but don't ever think, well, Cornerstone can't get sick, not us. Hmm. Yeah, we can. We can if we don't watch, if we don't hold fast. Here's a third observation. It's not hard for a church to get sick. What did they have to do to get sick, all these that are sick? What do you think? What did they have to do? That's exactly right. Nothing. Just do nothing. It's like your teeth. What do you have to do to get your teeth sick? Nothing. Don't brush. You've seen the bumper sticker, ignore your teeth and they'll go away. I have an aunt, my dad's sister. She, uh, no, sister-in-law. She was married to my dad's brother. And uh, she's a dental hygienist. Turns out, incidentally, the dentist's wife died and my aunt's husband died and then they got married. So anyway, she's the dental hygienist. And I asked her once, do I, do I really have to floss all my teeth every day? And she says, oh no, only the ones you want to save. <laughs> Don't ask me how I'm doing with that. Let's get away from the subject of flossing. It's too convicting. Just as it's not hard to lose your teeth, it's not hard for a church to get sick. Just ignore some bad doctrine. Just ignore some evil. You'll have a sick church in 60 years. Seminaries are always going from healthy to sick. Denominations are always going from healthy to sick. And churches are often going from healthy to sick. Little bad theology, a little doctrinal error, little evil creeping in, and boom, your church is sick. You're like teeth falling out. So these are seven churches on the planet. Meanwhile, what's going on up in heaven? That's chapter four. That's chapter five. And the rest of the book is the interaction of heaven and earth throughout all of church history. What's going on above those churches? What's going on in the presence of God about those churches? That's what we turn to next. So we leave the churches on the earth and we go up into the heavenly place and we see what's behind the scenes. This term keeps coming into my mind as I've been studying the book of Revelation, and maybe I can put it in your mind, and maybe you'll like it like I've liked it. What we see in the rest of the book of Revelation is the spiritual physics of the universe. Like there's physical physics, right? What is physics? I had to look it up because I don't know how to answer that question. I kind of know what it is, but it's the fundamental stuff of the universe, on the very small end, using quantum mechanics, which I have no clue what that is, to the entire universe using general relativity. I have some clues about what that is, but that's physics. How do we explain the stuff, the matter? But there are spiritual physics, and we're gonna go up into the presence of God now, above these churches and all churches, and we're gonna look at the spiritual physics of the universe. In other words, if you really want to know what's going on, well, this is it. 
we're going to see it. Here's how things are made. Here's what puts it all together. Here's how it all works. And if you want to understand your existence and the universe, you've got to know these things, spiritual physics. So let's go to Revelation 4.1. We made it to 4.1. After this, that means after that first batch of revelation about the churches, I looked, and here comes another batch of revelation. I looked, and behold, and you would behold if you saw this. This is a vision. It's not for real. It's a vision. I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, if you had been standing beside John and had looked with him, and he said, look, a door. Would you have seen a door? No, because there wasn't a door. John is in, in a vision state. He's in the apocalyptic mode. He's in the spirit So he's seeing something that symbolizes something else. What would a door open in heaven symbolize? By the way, this may even fit in with what we know about ancient cosmology, where they believe there was a hard dome over everything. We're down here on terra firma. Up there's a hard dome. The stars move on that dome, and John is seeing a door open in that. But the Bible doesn't say anything about that dome. That's just their ancient cosmology, and God isn't signing on to the dome part. But John sees a door open up there, and he might have thought, all right, the dome has opened, and I'm being in, oh, I'm giving it away. What does the door signify? Come on in. Yeah, come through. I want you to come in here. You're welcome to come in here. So John looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, that's the one he heard back in chapter 1 and verse 10. We won't reread that now. And the first voice, which I had heard, speaking to me like a trumpet. What's the trumpet? What, what's that stand for? Loud. It's the voice of God, and it's loud. So Jesus didn't up there whispering, hey, John, shh, I want you to come up here. No, it's a big, loud voice, and he said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So a door opens, a voice, a big, loud, trumpet-like voice, and John's told, come up. And what happens? Next thing you know, verse 2, at once I was in the spirit. So he's not in a normal place. He's not in a normal mode. He's not like you and I are right now. We're just in a normal place. It's like if you're in the Matrix, the movie Matrix, he took the red pill. And everything goes crazy. And everything looks different. And everything has different meanings. At once I was in the spirit. And behold, second time you use that word, he's like, Look, I'll tell you about it, look. And what's the first thing John sees? Say it loudly. What's the first thing John sees? A throne. Do you remember how many times in the book of Revelation do we have the word throne? 34. Throne, 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 throne. You're getting the point? What is the book of Revelation about? It's spiritual physics. What's the most important thing you can know about the spiritual physics of the universe? It's this there is a throne. But I ask you, is it symbolic or is it literal? Is there actually a chair that God is sitting on somewhere out there? God doesn't have a body. He's a spirit. He's incorporeal. Um, In the New Testament, he teaches people, the apostle Paul teaches people, you can't contain him in a temple. 
He's bigger than the universe. Is God really sitting on a chair somewhere? No, this is all a vision, remember. This is what John's seeing, but it symbolizes something. What does the big throne symbolize? Yes, those authority, sovereignty. There's a king. There is one seated on a throne, and he is sovereign. He is ruling. So here's one of the most important things you need to know about the spiritual physics of the universe. At the center of it all, at the center of everything else to reveal, is a throne. God is sovereign. God is ruling. And now in time, Ephesians 1.11, he is working all things according to the counsel, the eternal counsel, before eternity passed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit counsel, he is now in time working all things according to the counsel of his will. He is the sovereign God. That's what we're supposed to learn. The universe is governed by the throne. And is there persecution? There's a throne. And is there poverty? There's a throne. And in their tribulation, there's a throne. You're supposed to learn about the spiritual universe. It centers around a throne. Your life is supposed to center around God's throne. Your existence, your being, is supposed to center around God's throne. And here's something very important that we can teach our children and should teach our children. There is one who is at the center of the universe, son, and I just want you to know, it's not you. And to your daughter, young lady, there's one who is at the center of this universe, and you need to know, it's not you. It's God. He is at the center of the universe. You're of him, through him, and to him. You're here for him. You exist to give glory to God. Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So this is what the psalmist is talking about, this throne. Jehovah reigns, let the peoples tremble. That's the point of this throne. And this is the universe we live in. This is what behind, is behind the scenes, unseen, over those seven persecuted churches and the, the, the 30 Christians who will die today because they refuse to deny Jesus Christ. There's a throne, there's a throne, there's a throne. And remember the other phrase, and it was given, it was given, it was given, repeated many times in the book. You don't die in Christ unless it's given by the throne. You don't get persecuted on the earth unless it's given by the throne. There's a throne. And now the one who's on the throne is described. Look at Revelation 4.3 with me. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper. I thought, Jasper? Hmm. What color is Jasper? I didn't have a clue. I've never been to Jasper State Park up in Alberta, Canadian Rockies. I'd love to. I stopped right here and looked at pictures and thought, hmm, could Debbie and I get there somehow? Jasper, what color is Jasper? Well, it's, it's brown, but it's also yellow, but it's also red. And then there's this thing that, that I've never heard of, carnelian. What is carnelian? I had no clue. I'm going to have to look up that color. It's red with a touch of brown. So John says there's one sitting there who had the appearance of, but it's just an appearance. Maybe I'm not getting it right of brown and yellow and red and some more red and a touch of brown. Is God really red or brown or yellow? No, what, what was John seeing? 
He was seeing the effulgence, good old word. He was, see the, he was seeing the shining forth. He was seeing the Shekinah. He was seeing something that represented the glory of God. In other words, in God's presence, there's radiance. It's powerful. It's a throne. There's radiance and beauty. He's the God of all creation. And this is, this is weird. And around the throne was a rainbow. Now, how many colors are in a rainbow? All of them, right? The entire spectrum is in a rainbow. Am I right? I think so. But this rainbow is weird because it's revelation. All around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance, it kind of looked like an emerald. So it's a green rainbow. How can that be? It's a vision. It's a vision. But what does the rainbow signify? Probably God's beauty. God's love, God's covenant. What do these colors communicate? Taken together, it's the radiance of God, the effulgence, the beauty, the glory of God. What's at the center of the universe? What should be at the center of your existence? My God is on the throne and he's glorious. He's amazing. He's powerful. He's beautiful. And whatever is given from that throne and falls into my life, it comes from that one. And I bow and I submit and I bless. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And if I'm persecuted, I'll stand until death, God helping me, because he's the one on the throne. And in a little while, he's coming anyway. Behold, I'm coming quickly. So, so this is the world, this is the universe we live in, and there's more. We're only going to go through a little bit more of it today here. But uh, let's look around the throne. Revelation 4.4. 4. Around the throne, there were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders. 24 thrones. 24 thrones. Why do you think it's 24 thrones? So, like, here's the throne. Let's make the lectern. That's the throne, and the Shekinah glory of God is shining from that throne. Now around it, there's a big circle, and there's 24 other thrones with 24 elders. That's humans sitting on it. Why 24? In case you're wondering, there are 12 tribes of Israel, and there are 12 new covenant apostles, so these are all the redeemed of the old covenant and all the redeemed of the new covenant represented by their leaders, the leaders of those tribes and the leaders, these apostles. So it's, it's everybody who's ever been a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, old covenant or new, and they're all there in the presence of God. This is the spirits of just men made perfect. This was to encourage those believers. Here's a dear, here's a dear believer in the first century, she's in one of those churches, and they came and took her husband. And she has no idea where he is or what happened. He's just gone, probably dead. She doesn't know. My man's gone. Now I'm in poverty. Now I don't have a man. Now I got these hungry babies. What, what do I do? Where's my man? And she's to read this and say, he's there. He, he, he's there in the presence of God. He's better off than I am. Even without persecution, last, last year, where's, there's Joe. Joe, there you are, Joe. Last year, this year, we lost Bob. Where's Bob? Around the throne. The year before that, we lost Alice, my mother-in-law. 
lived with us for almost three years, died in our front room. Whereas Alice, she loved the Lord Jesus all her adult life, even in her dementia, when we would put on hymns for her, she loved that. <laughs> We'd play those for her at breakfast often. Where are they? Where's Alice? Where's Bob? That's where they are. And this is to encourage that one who lost a loved one. Somebody has called this a heavenly entourage. There's 24 elders. Notice what is said about them. Clothed in white garments. What's the white? What's the white mean? Purity. Holiness. That's one of the things about dying. Done breathing, done sinning. They're all done sinning. They're up there around the throne, all the redeemed of all time, worshiping, and there's no more sin and no more transgression and no more evil creeps out of any of their hearts. They're clothed in white garments and they have golden crowns on their heads. What's the golden crown? They are co-regents with Jesus Christ. Remember he said, I will make you pillars. Well, he also makes them to reign and to rule with him from thrones. So these are the redeemed. By the way, I can't help but notice, what's great about going to heaven? Is it that there's endless golf courses is it that you can have a Lamborghini? Is it you can knit forever? You have endless wool. You can just knit forever. What's the great thing about heaven? It's the throne. A little later in the chapter, we're going to also have the Lamb, and we're going to also have the Holy Spirit. But right now, we're just on the Father, the throne. It's the throne, and it's holiness, and it's reigning and ruling with Christ. This is the significant thing about heaven. Slide man, just like last hour, let's go all the way down to what we're supposed to learn from there. Here's what I want you to learn. Number one, this is our universe. Just as if you learned physics and said, oh, now I understand how atoms work. Now I understand gravity or whatever else you're going to learn from physics. This is, these are the spiritual physics of our universe. What's going on here? There's a throne. It's God. Life is to be centered around him. You can die in Christ and be holy and be with him forever and ever and ever. This is where you live. This is the real universe. This is where you need to be. Number two, what you're supposed to learn from this. This is especially to comfort suffering, persecuted Christians. They're supposed to read this and go, glory. Look where my loved one is. Look where I'm soon going to be. If they kill me, look where I go. Bring it on. You'll just usher me into glory. This is to comfort suffering persecuted Christians. And finally, this is to elicit worship. The Christian life is nothing if it isn't a life of worship. We are made to worship God. His throne is to reign in our hearts. We live our lives around his throne. We live every day worshiping him, loving him as the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength. And some of you are not Christians yet, and we're so glad you're here with us, but you're not worshiping God. You're not doing the thing you're made for. 
the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You're not enjoying him and you're not glorifying him. But you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and join this great number who worship him, who are blessed to worship him. If you don't love the idea that heaven won't be a golf course, but we'll be worshiping him around the throne, then you probably need to go to Jesus Christ and ask him for that new heart, that heart that loves him and that would love heaven where he is at the center. So that's all for today. Let's bow and pray. Father, thank you for giving us this portion of your holy word. Speak into our souls. Speak into our hearts through it. Perhaps there are some in this room, maybe some in other rooms who are with us online, who need to know you, Lord Jesus. Would you send the Holy Spirit into their souls to powerfully and effectually call them to turn and believe on you, to believe on the Lord Jesus and to find everlasting life. Thank you now, Father, that we can take communion together. We who are the blood-bought of the Lord, help us in taking communion that we may not be cold and that we may not be lukewarm, but that we may be hot. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Pastor Stan.